After seven years on the job, Michael Missel is one of the senior inspectors general. He joined Veterans Affairs as IG early in the second Obama administration, and he joins me now with a progress report. So IGs that last three administrations so far, uh, that's quite a record. Well, thanks, Tom. It's great to be here, and it's uh, truly an honor and a privilege to be able to serve as an inspector general. I want to start with something very specific, and that is the Electronic Health Record Project. This has been, let's say, problematic for VA, and there's really no end in sight. From the standpoint of the IG, and I know you have people working on this specifically, but what do you think is the prognosis here? Well, just as a little background, the Electronic Health Records contract, as you point out, is one of the most significant contracts in VA history. It signed as a 10-year, $16 billion contract, although recent estimates are going to be much higher. It's going to have an incredible impact on the quality of healthcare. So as a result, we've been looking at this very proactively, not waiting for them to finish the implementation, but really at the, the front end. VA has gone live at five sites, five of the medical facilities, and we've already issued 14 reports on the implementation, and we've identified a number of concerns. The implementation has been stalled, delayed. VA has said we're not going to go forward until we can fix the problems that have been identified. We made a total of 68 recommendations. 23 are currently open, and we're currently working on four more reports that should be issued in the next few months. One of them involves the many outages and degradation of services at the five facilities. So we'll have information on root cause and and more on what happened there. And there's been a lot of discontinuities in people in this particular project. First of all, the primary contractor was acquired, and then I guess Oracle scrambled some of its jets to try to salvage the thing because it was really badly off course. And then the leadership of the program within VA seems to be constantly revolving. Do you think that's an issue? That's always an issue. You know, in, in all of our work, we look at leadership, and any time there's change in leadership or you don't have stability of leadership, it typically leads to problems and more challenges in getting the job done. I mean, do you get the sense that the problems drove out successive leaders of this project? Or, you know, was it the other way around that the leaders said, forget about this, I'm never going to win here and moved on? I think everyone has its, its own story. But the bottom line is stability of leadership is critically important for any project to succeed. And that gets to the larger question in seven years of looking at VA. I mean, what's your overall sense? The external people to VA consider it a pretty well-functioning organization in its ability to deliver health care to veterans at that one-to-one level. But yet at the administrative, financial level, you know, it's a big bureaucracy and it has the problems of big, big bureaucracies. Yes. VA is the second largest federal agency It has over 440,000 employees. It's got a budget of over $320 billion now. I mean, it's just a huge, complex organization involved in in such difficult tasks such as providing quality and timely health care and then benefits to millions of veterans. So there's always going to be issues. There's always going to be ways to improve. And that's what I consider one of our most important functions which is to help VA improve the services and benefits that they provide to veterans and their families. 
But I mean the signals that you have gotten as VA and overseeing, as IG and overseeing all of the, I mean, you've got a thousand employees. Does the organization, it tries, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, like on health, let's talk about health care. You know, for the most part, VA provides quality health care in a timely basis. However, our oversight work, and just for healthcare, we have over 250 healthcare professionals doing that oversight inspections. We found a number of deficiencies in two areas where I think it's really critical for VA to improve. Uh, one is coordination of care. You know, we're finding breakdowns in the coordination, which leads to quality of care issues. It's also given that more veterans are getting care in the community, meaning non-VA providers are providing services to veterans, and the PACT Act, which is one of the largest increases in enrollment for VA healthcare for those exposed to toxic exposures, makes that coordination of care issue that much more challenging. Second one is suicide prevention. Suicide prevention is VA's number one clinical priority. Tragically, at least 17 veterans a day die by suicide. And we have seen lapses in basic suicide prevention measures, such as comprehensive suicide screening. So in all of these areas, we provide recommendations on how VA can improve, and they typically take our recommendations seriously, and I believe it does improve the health care for veterans. We're speaking with Michael Missel. He is Inspector General of the Veterans Affairs Department, and I'm recalling one interview we had a few years ago when you did an emergency report on dire conditions at the VA Medical Center in Washington, D.C. But then over the years, I mean, regularly, your staff does inspections of large VAMCs. I'm wondering in the aggregate, those inspections, what are the trends? What are the common elements or deficiencies that might cross the system? Because every particular center has its own particular localized issues. Sure. And so we do a regular inspection of all the VA medical centers. There's about 170 VA medical centers with clinics attached to them. So there's about 1,200 places where veterans can get healthcare services. So on about a three-year cycle, we're doing inspections of those facilities. And we really focus on five areas, which we think are really key to quality healthcare. One is leadership. As I previously talked about, leadership is so critical to a well-running organization. Another is quality, safety, and value, making sure that VA is not only providing quality health care, but they have systems in place to ensure that is happening. Medical staff privileging, ensuring that the right people are getting privileges, that they have the appropriate licenses. Environment of care, we literally walk around facilities checking to see for cleanliness and making sure that they are the appropriate facilities in terms of the, the care they're providing. And then the last one, which I talked about already, is suicide prevention. I can't talk enough about how important this is and how we're helping VA improve the way they are providing suicide prevention services and health and mental health care services. And how well do these medical centers and the medical staff, and especially in the area of suicide prevention, coordinate and collaborate and get information from the Defense Department from which all veterans ultimately emanate? That's a challenge. In fact, just yesterday, we put out a report about opioid use 
and service members who had opioid use issues and does it then carry does the care then carry over to VA and we found real gaps in that the VA wasn't aware of the uh, services that were provided when they were in the military and that of course then it's a and coordination of care issue causes real issues. So I think there are ways that the transition from the military to VA can clearly be improved. Because there would be some inconsistency there otherwise, because VA knows that everything it gets from a care standpoint, it inherited from the military. Hearing loss, for example, you know, a common occurrence for people that regularly fire howitzers or something or shoulder-mounted bazookas, this kind of thing, they have hearing loss. So you would expect maybe VA to be alert to that phenomenon across the possible health outcomes. And that's one of the theories behind the electronic health records transition, which is they want one health care record so that when a service member is in the military, that their health records from the military then convert over to VA. Currently, that doesn't occur. And so if this can be successful, there clearly would be benefits for veterans. And just a detailed question, you have recently completed a report about the VAMC in the Philippines. I didn't know they had one over there. How does that compare to the stateside medical facilities? So we did an inspection. VA has one medical facility outside the U.S. It's in Pasay City in the Philippines, which is outside Manila. They serve about 7,000 veterans who live in the Philippines. It's an outpatient clinic. They do primary care, mental health services, and they do some specialty care. And so like all other VA facilities, we do a regular inspection. We just published our report on Pasay City a couple of weeks ago. We identified a couple of issues where they can improve, but for the most part, it's a very well-functioning facility. And by the way, does the secretary ever get over there to check it out? I don't believe this secretary has been there yet, but the previous secretary did visit the, the facility. And in your years as inspector general, I'm counting, there's probably been five VA secretaries. There actually have been seven people in my seven years who've either been the secretary or the acting secretary. Okay. What's your assessment and how do they relate to the IG's office? Because that can be both cooperative and also maybe a little headbutting. There always is some tension there. It's a natural tension because of the oversight work that we do. But I find that with all the people in that chair, they've uh, recognized our independence and they've provided the support that is really necessary for us to do our job. And let's talk about the staffing of the VA's Office of Inspector General itself. It's a large staff. It's bigger than some small agencies, a 1,000 people roughly. What have been your human capital requirements, and how are you able to keep it fully staffed? We have such an important mission that we're able to attract and retain really outstanding candidates. And in any organization... It's all about your people, and we have an incredibly talented, experienced, and dedicated staff. And so right now, when we put out a job opening, we put them out on USA Jobs. We get lots of applications and resumes, and as I said, we, we see a lot of really talented people that apply for jobs here. Are you looking for financial acumen? Uh, sociology could be there. Medicine knowledge. I mean, the range of knowledges that you would need in a specialized agency that also has gigantic finance, information technology, and personnel 
challenges. It also does medicine, highly specialized. That seems like a like a wide range of things a given person would need to know. So do you look for specialists? Absolutely. So given, as you point out, VA is so large, so complex, there's so much to, to do oversight. We really are looking for people with a variety of education, background, skill sets. So just on healthcare alone, we have about 250 healthcare professionals in our healthcare inspection group. Each one has lots of initials after their name, some MD for the uh, the kind of work they do. We also have criminal investigators. We also have performance auditors. We also have a number of lawyers doing special reviews and other areas of work. So, yes, everybody in our organization, you know, is really well qualified to do the job. We're speaking with Michael Missel. He is Inspector General of the Veterans Affairs Department. One of the areas I've investigated a lot so to speak, through a series of interviews, is the research function at VA, which is not as well known to the general public. It's certainly very well known in medical circles, you know, outside of the VA. What's your assessment of their efficiency and economy and and general output for the inputs that they get? Well, VA's research function has really brought a lot of great improvements and breakthroughs for healthcare across the country. You know, VA has a lot of different functions, and one of them is its research function. And so we've looked at it on occasion, and we found for the most part, they're really providing great value. There's always room for improvement, and we've made the necessary recommendations, and VA has improved as they've implemented those recommendations. And we've been talking about Veterans Health Administration for most of the interview, but there's also the Veterans Benefits Administration, which would be a big agency in and of itself. And they've had issues with backlogs. And then when they get through those, you know, some new law like the PACT Act dumps a whole brand new issuance of claims and so forth. And lots of people that had not had claims have them now, you know, in the millions. What's your assessment of how VBA is navigating, you know, the last few years? Well, they certainly have seen this issue coming, as you point out, the PACT Act, which may be the largest expansion of VA benefits in the history of the agency. They prepared for it. They currently are doing a lot of things to ensure that the veterans are getting benefits in a timely basis, that the benefits are correct. We've increased our oversight work, been very proactive in looking at PACDAC, and VA, VBA has been great in terms of providing us information on what they're doing and, and their plans. And I meet regularly with senior leadership from VBA to ensure we're uh, currently informed on the issues. And How do you coordinate with the Government Accountability Office, or do you coordinate? They get their orders from Congress, and they look at VA regularly also. I'm always curious as to how the IGs and the GAO people either butt heads or coordinate or say, well, we're going to look at that. You don't need to, et cetera. So that's that's a great question because you're right. The GAO and IGs have overlapping jurisdiction on many of the areas. I feel it's critically important that we coordinate very closely with them because, you know, given that there's so much oversight work that can be done, I want to make sure it's as effective and impactful as possible. 
So I meet with Gene Dodaro, the Comptroller General, the head of GAO on a regular basis to talk about priorities and strategic issues. And our staffs meet on a very regular basis to talk about what they're doing, what we're doing, to making sure we're not doing the same issues. And then we work closely together to share information, which helps both of our oversight efforts. And you've worked in a number of federal domains in your career, you know, private law, but also other areas of the government. And there's this group called SIGI, the Council on Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency. And, you know, that group has even had a few challenges because there have been some challenged IGs. IGs are like priests and rabbis. You know, not all of them are exactly examples of rectitude, but that's because they're human beings. What's your sense of the strength of the SIGI community at this point? Because it's been through some tough times and been through some pretty good times. I think SIGI is a really important organization. There are 74 federal IGs, about half are appointed by the president, the other half are appointed by agency heads. SIGI, you know, helps share information, best practices, coordinate. I'm involved with SIGI in a lot of levels, including as the chair of the SIGI Investigations Committee, which helps coordinate the law enforcement efforts. There's about 3,500 law enforcement officials at various IGs. And so we ensure that we're all kept up to speed on current developments, training, etc. And so you're one of the law enforcement inspectors general. There's about 50 IGs that have law enforcement authorities. And so I help lead that effort, although I'm involved in all the issues that SIGI gets involved in. Well, that just leads to a kind of a tail question here, and that is VA has a police force at its facilities. And have you looked at that one? Because I don't think people realize that there's dedicated Veterans Affairs Police Department, I think it's called, right? Yeah, VA has one of the largest federal police forces out there that ensures that the many thousands of VA facilities are kept safe. So we've issued over the years a number of different reports about the effectiveness of the VA police. One of the issues that we've identified uh, is their governance structure. It's a pretty decentralized system. Like, for instance, the VA chief of police does not have authority over the various police departments at facilities. So we've identified that as an issue for VA to look at to determine how best to organize their police operations. And is that something that can be rectified at the secretary's level or does that require some congressional intervention, do you think? Now, that could be rectified within VA, and they are uh, working through and have made improvements in the area, but I think there's more to be done. So for those that might get appointed to an IG post, not modified, but the inspector general post in the future, what's your best advice for new IGs? Our advice for new IGs is really get to know the agency that you're conducting oversight of. Make sure you have good relations with the senior leadership, even though we're independent. They don't tell us what to do. Uh, It's really important to make sure you understand their priorities and strategies and then hire the very best people in the IG's office. If you don't have great staff, it's really going to be difficult to do this really difficult job that we have. And are all your people back at the office or are you one of these hybrid mode situations? It really depends. Myself, my deputy, all the senior leaders are pretty much back every day. I've not teleworked one day. I've been in the office every day throughout. And it really depends on the status of the individual. We do a lot of site work. So even if they're not in the office, they may be at a a VA facility. 
Michael Missel is Inspector General of the Veterans Affairs Department. As always, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tom, for having me. Happy to come back anytime. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? 
so if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing 
was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the way I that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.